Hello and welcome to this edition of the Ian Abernethy podcast. You can watch videos and listen to other podcast episodes by visiting www.ianabernethy.com. So, without further ado, here's Ian Abernethy. Hello, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the podcast. Uh, just a couple of quick things to talk about in this introduction. Uh, the first one is that, as uh, some of you will know, hopefully most of you will know, this is the second podcast uh, in as many weeks, I think. The great thing about the new website is it really makes it easy for me to add new content. So, uh, and as for those who are regular visitors of the site, you'll know that there's obviously a lot more going on there with new stuff being added to the news section all the time. Uh, one of the things we did a couple of weeks ago was we added the bonus podcast, uh, which covered uh, 10 recommended books to read. Not a top 10 or anything like that. But uh, um, So if you haven't checked that out, the, the, that bonus podcast, you may wish to. And hopefully I'll be able to get more bonus podcasts for you doing in addition to these regular monthly ones as well. Um, if you do, of course, what we tend to do is when the main podcast goes out, I send out the newsletter around the same time. But I'm very conscious of the fact I don't want to be sending uh, you know, loads and loads of emails to people. So uh, if you do want to keep up to date with every uh, new addition to the site, uh, one simple way to do it is to visit the site on a regular basis. And the other one would be Twitter, because I, I do announce the uh, the new podcast and stuff via Twitter. So Ian Abernethy, I-A-I-N-A-B-E-R-N-E-T-H-Y. Uh, if you want to subscribe or follow me on the, the Twitter account, you'll get to know uh, about all the new stuff immediately, in fact. Normally I just uh, I uh, notice on Twitter as soon as it's gone up. Okay, um, the other thing just to mention as well when we're talking about the website, the player uh, for the podcasts, we have an inbuilt player on there. Uh, it's working fine. There are one or two little issues with it. One is it's not quite counting the number of listens correctly. For some reason, it's getting confused and shows the page uh, number of page listens in its normal state. Uh, page visits, sorry. And then when you press play, then it goes to the podcast listens. Um, we are working on that and we are fixing it, so so don't worry about that. The key thing is that you get to listen to the podcast. So the counting's a little bit off at the moment. Uh, the other thing is the voting. We uh, have a, a function there where you can rate each podcast and the idea is that eventually uh, there'll be a, a section on the site where the most popular podcasts, the ones that people have said that they enjoyed the most, uh, will come up uh, on the kind of top of a uh, favourites list. But again, that's not working at the minute. So we are aware of that. So you don't need to email me about that. <laughs> um, uh, other bits of news, uh, just quickly, is uh, one is there's the karate uh, grappling course that I'm to start in January. It's been 10 years, can you believe, uh, since the karate's grappling methods book was first published. And in addition to all the seminar teaching I do, there's been a few people who've been asking me about uh, more in-depth training courses, you know, to cover specific uh, areas of uh, bunkai and my approach to practical martial arts. So, you know, we're having a look at that. I'm maybe going to organise some uh, pad work courses in the future and some on drills and uh, sparring drills and self-defence ones and all kinds of bits and pieces, depending on what people want. But the first one we're going to do is a five-month-long course on karate grappling, which covers all the various elements, you know, grappling within kata, grappling for multiple opponents, grappling and involving weapons, um, groundwork, all kinds of things. So if you're interested in that, if you go to the website,
website. You can find details on there under the news section. Uh, the other bit of news is that the uh, the long-awaited <laughs> um, Beyond Bunkai DVD will be ready very soon. Uh, in fact, it'll probably be ready before the next podcast goes out. Um, they're in production now. I believe that the DVDs and the covers and everything are going to be delivered to us uh, next week. Um, there's a few thousand copies being stamped as we speak. Uh, it, it covers the DVD covers the uh, an advanced drill that makes use of the whole of Naihanchi or Teki Shodan kata. It's not a, a fixed or set drill. It's, it's semi-live, meaning that the opponent is allowed to respond in certain unpredictable uh, ways. And I think you know it's a great drill for establishing dominance, to doing damage and escaping from the opponent. You know all the kind of things we need for for real self-defense. So I'm very happy with this DVD. Um, I, I, it's not really suitable if you're new to Bunkai, but if you if you understand the basics of Bunkai, I think you'll love this one. And if you keep an eye open in the the, the newsletters or the website and stuff, I'll let you know about that as soon as it's uh, available. Okay, so I think that's all the news. It's now time to get into the bulk of the podcast. And this month we're going to be discussing uh, stances. I think stances is one of those things that's often not uh, as understood as well as perhaps it might be. So hopefully uh, you'll enjoy uh, me sharing my ideas on uh, stances, or as I've called the podcast, my stance on stances. In this podcast, I'd like to take a look at the concept of stances. I recall teaching a joint seminar with Gavin Mulholland a few years ago now, and Gavin's opening line for his section was, the two most misunderstood words in karate are stance and block. He then went on to show how the stances of Goju can be applied in highly functional ways. Now, I totally agree with Gavin, and in this podcast, I'd like to address some of the misunderstandings associated with stances. I think the first issue we need to address is the connotations of the word stance. Now, having a quick kind of search through my dictionary and a quick scan online, some accepted definitions of stance would be uh, 1. The manner and position in which an animal or person stands. 2. The posture assumed when about to play the ball as in golf, cricket, etc. Or 3. A general emotional or intellectual attitude. So they're you know, three common definitions of stance. The problem we have in karate and related martial arts is that none of those work from a martial arts perspective. However, the common usage of the word stance colours how people view stances within the martial arts. I'll explain this more in a moment, but a fundamental error when it comes to martial stances is to view uh, that they represent fixed positions. They don't, but the common usage of the word stance helps foster that misunderstanding. So let's look at the common usages in turn, the common definitions of the word stance, and see why they don't work from a martial perspective. So the first one we had was the manner and position in which a person or animal stands. Now, the trouble here is the word stands. Uh, We are still when we stand, i.e. stand still. And hence this definition supports the mistaken view that stances are static. Uh, The second definition we had was the posture assumed when about to play the ball, as in golf, cricket, etc. The trouble with this one is that it says the posture assumed when about to play the ball. Now this assumes that we take a stance before we fight. That's wrong, we don't. But again, that definition supports the mistaken view that stances are something we assume before doing a technique. 
Now, the third definition is a general emotional or intellectual attitude. Now, that would seem to be relevant for our purposes, but it's not really. Because in everyday English, we use the word stance to infer a pre-existing or unchanging position or viewpoint. I.e. we'll say things like, that's my stance on that issue, or I'm taking an uncompromising stance on this. And, you know, and so on. And again, we see the common use of the word stance, uh, how that can confuse martial artists into thinking that martial stances are also pre-existing or unchanging, and they're not. So, what are stances? Uh, what are the four and how should they be viewed? Now, I see stances having two functions. Uh, the primary and overriding one being getting body weight into technique. And we'll look at the second one later. But the main thing that we want to discuss at the moment is the function of stance is to get body weight into technique. Now, any instructors listening to this will be aware of the problem that when teaching the correct uh, shifting of body weight, you, you come up against this barrier of the student's uh, understanding. So if I tell someone to adjust a hand, move a leg, bend a knee, etc., then that's very straightforward for them to do. However, if you request uh, for someone to say, uh, drop your body weight, project your body weight, pull with your body weight, stabilize your body weight, and so on, you know, you, most often you're going to get a look that says, well, what the hell is my body weight and how do I move it? So knowing how to move body weight requires that you get the correct feeling for doing so. And one of the best ways to do that is through stances. Now, when the lower grade student shifts through the relative stances, what they are effectively doing is learning to move their body weight. Through this practice, they will gain the correct feel for body weight, and eventually shifting weight will become quite natural and intuitive. Now, now this is what's behind Gichin Funakoshi's 17th precept. That precept says... Stances are for beginners. Advanced students will use natural body positions. So we'll just repeat that. Stances are for beginners. Advanced students will use natural body positions. Now, this doesn't refer to a change in practice where beginners use stances and advanced students abandon them in favour of something else, which is often how it's interpreted, but that's not what it means. What it refers to is that the stances of the beginners become the natural body positions of the more advanced student. Through the practice of stances, the beginning student learns to shift their weight such that they will eventually be able to do this intuitively and naturally. All of the same postures will be there, but for the beginner they are fixed postures that they, uh, they think about, whereas for the advanced students they are positions they move through quite naturally and without much conscious thought. One of my favourite sayings in the martial arts is from Genwa Nakasone. In his clarifications of Funakoshi's precept, on the 17th one he says, Karate has many stances, it also has none. Now, karate has many stances, it also has none. I absolutely love that. That's pure genius in my view. It may seem like a paradox, but it's not. Karate has no fixed postures, but we move through many postures as we move. So if, if you were to snapshot one of those transitions or shifts in body weight, then you have a stance. So in theory, and in lower grade uh, practice, karate does have many stances. But in reality, that, uh, an application, karate has no stances because all movement will be natural and fluid. But that natural and fluid movement will contain many stances. <laughs> now, I hope you get where I'm coming from with this and it doesn't seem too paradoxical. It's actually very straightforward and I think my well-worn golf swing analogy may help. Um, to communicate this point, I often demonstrate what I call my golf swing kata at the, at the seminars. Now, essentially, a golf swing is made up of three key postures or stances. There's the backswing, the point of contact with the ball, and then the follow-through. If any one of these positions is wrong, then the ball will not fly true or as far as it could. 
So a golf coach will therefore ensure the trainee golfer understands where their body and club should be at these three key points. A golf swing cutter, if you can imagine such a thing, would therefore freeze at each of these points to ensure the correct posture was understood. The cutter would therefore have three stances, you know, the backswing, the point of contact and the follow through. However, when swinging the club for real, the golfer would move through all positions, so the stances will still be there, but they would not freeze on them, so the stances are not there. <laughs> it must always be remembered that we fight with the information in cutter, we don't fight with cutter. Uh, in a similar way to how we cook good food by following recipes, but we don't eat recipes. The stances are there in the cutter so you can see how the body weight should shift and the positions we should move through. In bunkai training, you must through, uh, flow through these postures and not freeze in position, because you tend to get hit a lot if you do that. Now, there'll be some who feel, well, why not just skip the stance stage and move straight to natural motion? However, that's a bit like saying you should uh, build the rooms of a house before laying down the foundation. If we shortchange or skip over the learning to move our weight through defined posture stage, then we will never really get to the point where we can intuitively move body weight. You simply can't jump to the optimum stage without going through the basic stages first. Uh, one of the things I see in modern martial arts is people wanting to run before they can walk. They never get the basics mastered, and just like a building with poor foundations, they therefore limit the heights they can reach. Now, a reasonable proportion of reality-based martial artists that I know have this problem. Because of their desire to get functional and fast, they don't spend enough time on the foundations, and hence they never reach high skill levels. Now, before the traditionalists get smug, you guys have the other problem. It's not so much running before you can walk, but never moving beyond walking, deliberately avoiding running, and then wondering why you never win any races. When done well, there is very little difference between the good reality-based exponent and the good traditionalist, which shouldn't really be that surprising. Because uh, the good in both camps, you know, you know, you can argue that there should be one and the same anyway, but the good in both camps lay the foundation and continue to refine that foundation. And they also know that the foundation is a means to an end and is a thing to be built upon. So return to the building analogy, yes you do need a good foundation, but you don't live in the foundations. The usable bit lies on top of the foundations. So the practice of stances uh, is important and you should continually refine them, always remembering that the aim is flowing and powerful movement that effectively uses body weight. So let's go back to the word uh, stance again, okay, and the way it's used in, in everyday English. Now, as we saw, it's got strong connotations of something fixed, something immovable, and pre-existing or assumed in preparation. Fixed and immovable is wrong, as the stances in karate are transitory positions that we move to and through. They are never fixed, or indicative of static positions in combat. The still people are normally the unconscious ones, or the ones about to be unconscious. Um, so I hope I've satisfactorily explained that stances are an important means to an end in the teaching and development process. And they're not meant to be fixed postures. However, the word stance can and does lead to misunderstandings about these postures. Another common misunderstanding based on the way the word stance is used in English is the idea that we assume a stance to fight or to perform a certain technique, i.e. it is something we do in preparation, as was suggested by our dictionary definitions. Again, this isn't so. The stances are positions we move to and through. We start from wherever we are. Now that could be a natural standing position, sitting in a chair, reeling from a punch, being on balance, being off balance, uh, the conclusion of the last motion or technique, and so on. We don't get into a stance to do techniques. 
we do techniques by moving into stances. It is the motion into the stance that ensures we have weight behind whatever technique we are applying. A punch is powerful because the weight is going forwards, it's behind the punch. Now if we go forwards, I assume the stance, and then punch, it will be very weak because the weight finished moving before the punch started. Such a practice will also mean we are static, you know, we've moved into the stance, we've stopped and we're punching, and that causes major defensive problems as well as offensive ones. The damage is done to the enemy through the assuming of the stance. We don't assume the stance first and then try to do damage. The body weight must be moving as the technique is being applied. Moving the body weight before or after the technique means it was devoid of body weight and hence it will be ineffective. Remember that stances show us where we should move to or through. They do not represent a mandatory start position. And the instant the stance is assumed and the technique is applied, it will seamlessly move on to the next position as the dictates of the situation require. As we've discussed, the word stance has connotations of something fixed and immovable. In combat, however, situations are constantly changing and hence stances should also be in a state of flux. The distribution of body weight should not be fixed, but should be constantly changing depending upon the technique being utilised at that time. Stances will be assumed as and when required before instantly shifting the body weight to the next appropriate position. Now as a quick aside on this, you know, in certain karate circles there's often a debate as to which is the best way of performing stances. Some say that stances should be high because this increases the mobility of the karateka. Some say that stances should be low because this means the karateka's centre of gravity is also low and hence the techniques will, delivered, uh, will be more effective. However, common sense tells us that you should assume whatever stance is required at that time. If you require mobility, the stance should be high at that particular moment. If you require stability, then the stance should be low. It's always about function and what is appropriate at that time. You know, the stances are snapshots of an instance. They're not something static. Earlier in this podcast, you'll recall that I said that stances have two functions and that the primary one is getting body weight into technique, and that's what we've been discussing. The secondary uh, function of stances is limiting the enemy's motion. Uh, and what I mean by that is legs getting in the way of the enemy's legs to prevent them from moving or stepping off from a throw or, or whatever, or kneeling on the chest to stop them immediately getting up and so on. So those applications where the legs are used to uh, limit a, po uh, a person's motion are bunkai-specific, and it's difficult to discuss them generally in a podcast such as this. The key point here, though, is that I only acknowledge those two functions, i.e. body weight and restricting motion. I don't accept non-combative things uh, or explanations of stances, such as strengthening of legs and improving balance. I just don't see them as valid explanations of stances. Now, I'm not denying that shifting through the stances can strengthen your legs. What I am saying is that they were not created for that purpose. To use an analogy, when I batter the punch bag, it gets my heart rate up and it's good for my health. You know, I'll lose fat, you know, it's good for my cardiovascular system, it, um, it keeps me healthy. However, punches weren't designed to improve my health, they were designed to ruin other people's health. So when looking at the stances within kata, we must always look for the combative function and not accept non-combative fob-offs as valid explanations of the function of stance. The final thing I'd quickly like to mention in this podcast is that all systems use stances. They may not use the term stance, and they may have differing teaching methodologies, but they all have positions to move to and through, and to my way of thinking, those are stances. I can recall a fair number of situations where people have told me they don't use stances, before shortly afterwards emphasising a body position by freeze-framing it. 
Now, that is what a stance is. And when they say they don't use stances, what they normally mean is they don't understand what karateka mean by stances. And that's fair enough, because most karateka who purport to make use of stances don't understand them either. Stances are not something fixed or static or something assumed before a technique is executed. They represent positions we flow to and through during the execution of a technique. By freeze-framing and isolating these positions for less experienced students, we give them the opportunity to learn the otherwise intangible idea of effectively shifting body weight in the optimum way. Once we can walk, we then need to run and internalize the stances so they are there, but not there. It is then that we can apply our techniques in the optimum way. If you fail to understand how stances develop, then you'll never reach optimum levels. Likewise, if you try to short-circuit the process and try to flow before you can effectively shift weight, you will again fail to reach optimum levels. If you understand the process and stick with it, not only will you reach high levels within the martial arts, but you'll also understand what a genius Nakasone was when he said, Karate has many stances, it also has none. I hope you enjoyed that discussion on stances, and we're now going to look at some listeners' questions. Uh, those who listen to the podcast regularly will remember that I asked for feedback a few months ago, and one thing that came back loud and clear was that people wanted a little bit more interaction, and in particular, the, uh, what was a very popular suggestion was the idea of answering listeners' questions. As I've always said, you know, as much as I enjoy making these podcasts, there'd be very little point in making them if people weren't listening to them. So um, it's right that I answer the questions that you want to answer and we cover the topics that you want me to uh, to cover. So um, by all means, you know, if you have a question, then uh, you can either tweet it to me at Ian Abernethy or you can send it to me at ian at ianabernethy.com and I'll try and do a couple a each month. So the first one this month is from Scott King. And Scott King asks, do I think competition karate has any practical self-defense benefits? Uh, it's a great email, actually, from Scott, because he goes through, you know, many of the, uh, the the kind of crossovers, really. You know, that competition gets you used to experiencing nerves and adrenaline. Um, it, it, it gets sharpness, um, uh, increased reflexes, mobility, and all, all those kind of things. And there's some certainly you know, positives in there. But I would maybe approach this question from uh, another way. Because there are negatives as well, of course. You know, you, you, you're pulling your punch all the time. Uh, points competition is absolutely nothing like a real fight. The students can get confused by distancing. If they think it's like a real fight when they're used to fighting at eight feet, and then all of a sudden they've got a guy within eight inches, it's very, very difficult. And... The way that I would suggest that we get away from this and get around this is just by putting things into individual boxes. Um, so rather than saying, you know, does competition have any benefits for self-defense, I think the best way we can approach this is just going, well, we don't care whether it has or it hasn't, because it is what it is, and we'll practice it as it is. So um, that might sound like an odd one, but I think one of the things that you often get within karate, it's like a martial schizophrenia. Um, sometimes it's not quite sure, you know, what it wants to be. It's got multiple personalities. We talk about karate for, you know, for the art, for self-defense, for sport. And, and the trouble is people try and kind of cram all of that in, into one form of practice. Now, um, if you can visualize this as I'm speaking to you, the way I like to view it is think of it like a Venn diagram where you've got overlapping circles. So you've got, you know, let's take, you know, let's make it really simple. So we'll say we've got the, the self-defense uh, self circle. We've got the sport circle. And then we've got from there the art circle, the martial art, you know, the, the culture, the dough, the self-development side of things. And they're just, you know, doing it because we like it. 
So you've got those three circles overlapping. So there will be some things common to each uh, each for all three, and there will be some things common to two and not to the other. So there are some overlaps there. What we often find, though, in karate is people try and force all those circles on top of one another. Uh, and I don't think we should do that. If I'm training for self-defense, then I should practice purely for self-defense. I don't care about what it looks like, I don't care about the art of it, and I don't care about you know what the rules of sport say. It's just an irrelevance at that particular moment. When I come to practice sport, um, not that I, I do sport in my club, but fighting, say, you know, we do fight, all right? So if we're doing uh, the, the sport side of things, then I would say, okay, I don't care if this is relevant to self-defense. I don't care if it's relevant to the traditional martial arts. The rules of the competition tell me what I need to do to win, and that's what I'm going to train for in this particular moment. Uh, and if you compartmentalize things like that, it's great because it frees you up to do all the things you need to do. Because th then people can, if you like competition karate, then you can do it and you can enjoy it and you can benefit from it and get every all the benefits out from it without having to try and justify that 100% of it fits in the martial, uh, the, the self-defense box or, or the martial arts box because it just doesn't. It, it just should stand uh, on its own. Uh, because otherwise, if we don't, we get a thing that I, I love this phrase. I think it was Jamie Club who first told me it, where he said, uh, What he called the byproduct myth. So, what we do is we train for one thing and believe we'll get better of something, at something else as a byproduct. Um, now, we sometimes see this where people go, Okay, I'll train for sport, but the byproduct of that is I'll learn to defend myself. Well, no, no, don't do that. Just train to learn to defend yourself. You know, and then you can do the sport side of it, you know, separately to that. And then, you know, so you can enjoy the sport then without worrying whether it fits with the, the self-defense um, side or not. So are there some crossovers between sport fighting and self-defense? Yeah, they are. You know what I mean? And, and, and Scott in his email makes a really good job of kind of bringing those out. But I, but I would say I don't really care that they're there, okay? Because when, when I, if I was training for sport, then I would concentrate on sport. When I'm training for self-defense, I'm training on self-defense. And what I, I try to do in my own dojo all the time is, okay, okay, this bit here now, this is pure self-defense. This bit here now, this is for, for fitness and fun. Um, th th this bit here now is a fighting skill, you know, a one-on-one -on -one, uh, fight with a guy, how to get this guy to submit or tap out or whatever. Whereas in the self-defense, we'll be looking to kind of run away and flee. And it's so... There's all these different elements in, in, in karate, and I think the best way to address all that is not worry about where they cross over, but just to focus on each individual uh, part of it. Um, and, the, you know, the crossovers will happen quite naturally, but we don't focus on them, we fo uh, focus on the uh, the specifics. So I hope that was okay for you, Scott. You know, that <laughs> um, it's a subject I really like talking about because I think it's very important that we get those uh, those demarcations. So thank you very much for the for the question and uh, for allowing me to, to chat about those things. The next question I have uh, came via Twitter from Captain Tau. <laughs> Assuming, you know, I know that's not his real name, but that's because uh, I know him well from the seminars, but uh, that's the name he goes under in Twitter, yeah? And he was asking about the show versions of, of, of the uh, the kata. You know, we've got Basai show, Kanku show, all that kind of stuff. You know, and, and what benefits are there uh, in those uh, smaller versions? Now, I mean, we could discuss this in depth, but I, I think one of the key things that we have that we need to kind of acknowledge really is that the old way of practicing was to concentrate on a small number of kata. Now, what we have nowadays, of course, is we tend to practice in a much wider number of kata. And as a result of that, there's an awful lot of crossover. So we need to remember that it, originally, each and every kata was designed to be uh, a standalone system. All right? So the pinans or the hians, they were designed to be standalone. Uh, a kanku, a kshanku, that was designed to be standalone. Basai was. They weren't designed to be used 
together. They were designed by different people at different points in history. Um, so my view is they're all complete systems in and of themselves. Now, so what happens is, of course, as people start bringing all these systems together, they invariably find there's a lot of overlap. So, oh, yeah, okay, this form's shown me this method, but exactly the same method is shown in the other form. Now, now if the cutters were designed to be used together, well, that would be, well, why, why are you doing that? You're replicating things. You know, you've got the same things twice. The reason they're in both cutters, of course, is the cutters were originally designed to be used individually. But as we bring them together, we get those crossovers. And I think that's where the show versions come into it, really. Because the, the, the show versions tend to kind of bring out, like, the, uh, the alternatives and the things that are more exclusive to that cutter when combined with others. So I think one of the uh, positives that the show versions can bring is... Uh, we get away from the crossover. We learn the big picture still, but we uh, avoid all the uh, repetition. For, for me, though, the way I would approach it is, you know, the, the important thing is that whatever cutters we are studying, whichever ones we're working on, that we make sure that we cover the bunkai to it. Now, for example, so when my students learn the bunkai to Pinan Shodan cutter, they've got a good grasp when, before they leave that of what Shutuki does. Right, so therefore, when they come to study Kushanku, they're aware that the um, the knife hands are in that form, but we don't go over the bunkai again because they've already learnt it, you see. So the way I, I do it is, yeah, we'll learn the full kata, we'll learn the katas in their entirety, but what we won't do is, in our bunkai practice, we won't cross over. Because, of course, you know, Kushanku came first and it was drawn into the pinans, if you like, you know, so no need to do that. So it, it just depends on varying approaches, but my view on the show forms is the forms that created there, the help, because the, the you haven't got the mandatory crossover but whether we do those show forms or not to me doesn't really matter but what we shouldn't be doing of course is duplicating things in bunkai practice if you've already drilled something from one form there's no need to drill it again when it appears uh, appears in another so I hope that's okay you know uh, that you've found those questions interesting if you've got any uh, questions for me for the future podcasts then by all means just email them to me say ian at ianabernethy.com or you can tweet them to me at ian abernethy ian both times spelt i-a-i-n Well, that concludes this month's podcast. Uh, just one thing I'd like to say in conclusion, you may have noticed a little kind of like, was like a clicking or a, a low-pitched rattle in the background throughout this podcast. Um, you may even be able to hear it now. Uh, <laughs> uh, the reason for that is my microphone, my beloved podcast microphone that I've had from day one, is now bust. If you could see the state of the poor thing. So what I'm going to do between now and the next podcast, we'll invest, we'll get some new equipment, and hopefully we'll be able to get rid of those little uh, tweaks and um, improve the sound quality for you uh, once more. You know, one day we may even sound professional, who knows. Um, so yeah, in light of that as well, one thing I'd just like to quickly say, I'd like to thank all those who do um, buy the books, buy the DVDs, come to the seminars, um, because it's you that provides the money in order for us to be able to buy the new equipment, to, to record the podcast. You know, it takes time and money and to do these things and to host these things, and it's you guys who provide the funds for that. And the vast majority of people who listen to these podcasts will never buy a single thing from us. You know, The vast majority of people who visit the site, uh, again, never buy a single thing. If they did, I'd be a very, very wealthy man, you know. <laughs> But but I'm okay with that. I'm totally happy with that. I never want to charge for things that, that uh, like this, like the podcast and the articles and the website access and stuff like that. Because I believe that you know I believe in what we do. I believe in what I do. I th I'd like to think what we do has a positive uh, uh, effect upon karate. You know the martial art that I love so much. And I, and I want to 
share what I do with as many people as possible for anyone who wants to listen to it. So, um, yeah, we'll never charge for these kind of things or anything like that. So we provide, hopefully, a lot of free content, but at some point we have to pay bills. So, therefore, you know, the ones that do buy the books, that do um, buy the, the DVDs, that do come to the seminars, um, not only, obviously, do you get extra value through doing that, but also you you, you bankroll the whole thing, okay? You, you keep this going. So next month, when I'm sitting in front of my new equipment and I've got my new sound gear and hopefully the sound quality is that little bit better for you, um, it's you people who've paid for that, you know? So a very sincere thank you to you for, uh, for doing so. And for all of you, you know, whether you buy things or not, thank you for listening in. I really do enjoy producing these podcasts and there'd be no point if nobody listened to them. So thank you all. Um, okay, so I think that's it for this month. I mean, have a great month uh, and I'll be back uh, next month with some more, uh, more information. Okay, take care and I'll speak to you soon. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye.